Thank you for joining us for this discussion hosted by the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. I'm Jessica Hughes, Senior Lecturer in Classical Studies here at the Open University, and I'm joined today by my Open University colleagues, Professor Phil Perkins and Dr Eleanor Betts, and we're very excited to welcome Dr Camilla Norman from the Institute of Classical Studies. Today we're going to be discussing the themes of gender and ritual in ancient Italy and beyond. Camilla, can you begin by giving us some background about your work on pre-Roman religion in Italy? Which area have you been focusing on primarily? I primarily focus on the area that is today the northernmost third of Apulia and northeast Basilicata that we know as Dornia. And I've been working on a group of monuments that are unique to this area, in fact unique to a very small region of this area in the, in the north of Dornia, uh, roughly around uh, the Gulf of Manfredonia. These statue stele, as they are called, the Dornian stele, what they are are limestone slabs that roughly resemble what today we might think of as a tombstone, and they are decorated by incision on all sides to show a human figure. And you get both female ones and male ones. And what we see are their dress and their adornment. So the males will have weaponry and the females will have jewellery. About a quarter of these also have what we call additional figurative iconography. And those show all sorts of scenes, but I think a vast majority of them, in fact, show scenes of ritual. And so even though I've been looking at these monuments for longer than I care to admit. Um, It's only quite recently since I moved to uh, London about a year ago to work with Greg Wolfe on the Sanctuary Project that I have started to focus on the religious aspect of pre-Roman Italy. So stepping back from the stelae for a moment, do we have much evidence for ritual activity for religion in this area? Or is it a bit of a mystery? <laughs> it's a huge mystery, in fact. There's very, very little that we can say is overtly tied to the world of religion in this period for Dornia. And the period I'm looking at is what we roughly call the Archaic period from the 7th century to the early 5th century BC. And at this period, we might classify the Dornians as proto-urban. They're quite an egalitarian society from what we can tell from the rest of their material culture. There doesn't seem to be any sort of strong hierarchy. And we only have built infrastructure that seemingly relates to domestic contexts. Um, We do have quite large towns the largest is um, Arpi, and that's got a wall around it. Uh, an agar, it's a sort of a, a dirt uh, earthen, <laughs> an earthen mound with a ditch. And that's really the only example we have that you can point to communal activity. Otherwise, it seems to be very much a kinship-based society. And so even though these towns can be really quite large, and Arpi itself has a perimeter wall of seven kilometres of this agar and seven kilometres against a river. So it's about a thousand hectares that encloses. Habitation within it is very, very sparse. And we don't see any communal buildings that we might suspect are for religious or political or communal use whatsoever. So this is what's really lovely about these images that we have on the stele because otherwise we would know much, much, much less about Dornian life and belief systems we could possibly hope to know 
from the rest of their archaeological material. So the imagery on the stele is very, very rich. There's lots of different directions that we could go in talking about them. But today we're going to focus on gender. So you've already mentioned men and women in relation to the stele. So could you go into a bit more detail and explore what these can tell us about gender as it was understood in ancient Dornia? The first thing to note about the stele when we start talking about gender is how disproportionate the numbers are between the male and the female stele. We get about five times as many females as we do males. When we start to look at those that specifically have this secondary iconography, these little vignettes of scenes on them, that ratio changes to about two females for every one. The reason I become interested in the gender aspect of this is because what I consider to be ritual imagery, for the most part, falls on the female stele. There's a very, very strong bias when you start looking at only what we might consider to be ritual imagery, that it falls on the females. Um, And while the males, you're more likely to get scenes that we might think of as warfare or mythology or, or local folklore. Of course there's always a crossover between ritual and folklore and it can be very hard to tease those two apart. So we're talking in relatively general terms here. But what's also very very interesting is the images themselves. When we can assign a gender to one of the little figures that's on the stele, and we can't always because it's quite a rough surface that we're working with. It's a limestone and so you don't get the sort of delicacy that you might in tomb painting or in vase painting. It's etched into a relatively rough limestone. But when we can tell the gender, and quite often we can, it seems that it's the women themselves who are in fact the ones responsible for the organisation and the, the actual actors behind these religious rituals. And some of the imagery that can be brought into this ritual cycle, as I call it, involves activities that are very much we consider to be part of the female sphere, and one of those is weaving. And not only can it be seen from the articulation of the figures in these scenes that they are females who are doing weaving, we do know from grave goods and lots of other evidence that female that weaving was very, very associated with the female world in ancient times. Phil, you work further north in the territory of the Etruscans, so around the modern Italian regions of Tuscany, Umbria, Lazio. What kinds of evidence do we have for Etruscan religion? Well, that's a really big question because um, religion was an an important part of Etruscan life. Um, One of the things about the Etruscans is we don't have any sort of written history that they produce themselves. It probably did exist, but it hasn't survived. So what what we're left with is things that other people wrote about them, like the Romans, for example. One of the most famous Roman historians, Livy, wrote that the Etruscans were more devoted to religion than any other people and are expert at practising it. And so from his point of view, religion pervaded their their lives. And um, to to try and explain a bit, um, the relationship between the gods and the Etruscan people seems to have been very important, and they seem to have uh, gone to, to great lengths to manage that relationship. One of the um, things that we do know is there, there was uh, a, a set of ritual books called by the Romans the Disciplina Etrusca, the Etruscan discipline, the Etruscan rules. And these, which 
don't survive really any anymore, um, outlined rituals and ways of ma managing this relationship with the gods, the kind of things you should do to keep a particular god or goddess happy. Um, and also to read the signs that the gods might send to you. One book that does survive in a complicated way via the Byzantine Empire is um, a series of instructions on how to in interpret thunder and lightning and as a sign from the gods. So if you hear lightning coming from such and such a direction, that means you're in some kind of trouble or not, as the case may be. So we, we have some of this that survives. The other things we have are material remains of the religion, um, and quite a few of those are what, what you can call votive objects of various sorts, so objects which were offered to gods to, or goddesses to um, help manage the relationship with, with gods. Um, so just, just some examples, there's a, an excavation in a city called Tarquinia. Um, they found a building which was associated with ritual and as, as one of the earliest parts of that building they found a, a deposit of votive objects which included um, a lituus which is a trumpet used by um, Etruscan priests, a kind of trumpet-shaped object that sort of doubles up as a trumpet and a staff. It's a kind of like, it looks a bit like a bishop's crook, you know, like a shepherd's crook kind of thing. Um, and an axe that, and a shield which had been folded up and they were buried as, as kind of offerings at the, uh, um, at the, uh, on the foundations of this building and this is at the end of the 8th century BCE. Another kind of votive offering we get is, is a figurine. And there's some debate about these figurines as to whether or not they represent the person who's making an offering to a god to try and propitiate gods, or whether they represent the actual god themselves. Um, or it could be one or the other, probably not both at the same time, but it's, it's a way of uh, establishing a relationship by giving a gift to, the, to a deity of one sort or another. And the earliest ones of these that we, we find tend to be women. In, um, why that is, well, we can speculate. Other things that we, we have that tell us about religion are there are various artefacts that actually depict rituals, what looks like rituals. Um, there's a, a strange class of artefact called a cult wagon, which is like a, they're thought to be sort of incense burners that are actually on wheels as well, but they have little figures dotted around them doing things. So dancing around, for example, there's one where there's some figures, male warrior figures, dancing around what looks like a, a bear that's chained into the middle of a circle. And then there's other little scenes that are family scenes of a male and a female and a child, or animals. There's one scene of ploughing, there's dogs, there's hunting, all sorts of things like this that are, are represented in a kind of ritual way. So we do actually have some images of rituals. Other things we have, there's some evidence um, from statues that have survived, terracotta statues um, that represent ancestors. There's one site in particular called Poggio Civitate Murlo, where there are figures that were placed on the roof of this, what we could call shorthand a palace, an important building, but not, we don't think, a temple, just an important building occupied by the, well, we call them aristocrats, the aristocracy, but that's a kind of modern term that we borrow, we, we sort of project backwards, the sort of top rungs of society. And they seem to have wanted to represent figures on their roof of their buildings. And these aren't deities, we don't think, they're probably ancestors, and so it's sort of pinning people's lived space to the same building that their ancestors lived in as well, so it's kind of fixing groups of people to particular buildings and places. It goes on this list, because <laughs> ritual was important and religion was important to the Etruscans, we have then the area of burials. Burials, obviously, everybody gets buried in the end, well, maybe not everybody, a lot of people in the past, and burial enters into the sphere of religion as well, in various ways. 
And then we have Etruscan gods and goddesses that we know about because they get represented on objects. And the Etruscans seem to have had their own set of gods and goddesses, which they then matched up with Greek ones when they found out about the Greek world. And so we can say that the Greek god Tinia is the same as um, Zeus of the Greeks or Jupiter of the Romans. It's the same kind of idea in, a, in the same kind of god. And then we have the temples where the gods lived. We have plenty of temples excavated and the offerings made at temples. And the last thing I think I'm going to mention is the altars that we have, because we have altars sometimes separate from temples as well, where people made offerings to their gods as well. And I could go on, but I think <laughs> I've given you a fair enough yeah, idea. We, of... we need some more programmes on the Etruscans, <laughs> so, so thinking about what Camilla was saying about this quite, I suppose, binary distinction between the male and the female representations with not much crossover... What happens in Etruria? Are there connections to be made with Camilla's material or is it a very different picture? It's difficult because we we don't have much internal evidence from the Etruscan world about how they conceived of gender. What we have, which is similar to what um, Camilla has, is... um, representations which we can interpret in gendered terms. And a lot of those are in terms of things like um, dress or ornamentation, jewellery or weapons, um, items that we can um, consider to be gendered because we find them repeatedly associated with um, either males or females. So in Etruria, for example, we have different kinds of brooches that were pinned to hold cloaks on. Some are associated with males and some associated with females. When you say males and females, are you talking about the osteological evidence? Is there much of that? Not that much osteological evidence from um, Etruria, but um, it, it does seem to be consistent. But there are there are certain anomalies, though, um, because there's, there's a class of burial that are known as chariot burials that um, very often female burials. And t- typically a chariot is assumed to be a weapon of war um, and used exclusively by men, but we have um, a, a class of burials that we end up calling princess burials, um, who are buried with chariots and some of them also have weapons in as well and so maybe what we're getting is a mixed a mixed signal of representations here some to do with status and some are to do with gender and they're not necessarily exclusive sometimes they get combined as well there are are clear differences in things like the kind of clothes that people are represented in whether they're male or female there are different costumes that people wear and there do seem to be different social roles just as Camilla was saying in, 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 in the Etruscan world weaving is is particularly associated with 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 females um, and even in some of our religious contexts the site I've been excavating at called Poggio Colla it's a temple dedicated to Tinia the equivalent of Jupiter and Uni um, here um, the equivalent of um, Hera or Juno and there we find deposits of loom weights which are the weights at the bottom of the loom to weave um, uh, fabrics and also spindle whorls that are used for for spinning thread and these seem to be deliberately deposited in the area of an of an altar that later becomes a temple and it's the same kind of idea that females are using objects that we can consider to be gendered as an offering in this particular religious context we don't know an awful lot about what actually went on in these places because what we're left with is the the material remains which are the objects that they deposited. And we have found a nice long inscription there as well, but it's written in the Etruscan language and we have great difficulties understanding it. I mean, we can identify a few words, but it seems to represent a series of, again, instructions about what was supposed to go on in this, in this particular religious context.
And Can I, I add something up before? Yeah. Just from what Phil was saying, when I talk about binary in terms of the steely, the reason that I'm happy to call the, these two different classes, which are representation of a male and a female, actually as sex labels, male and female, is because of two specific attributes that we find on the so-called female steely, one being the tattooed forearms and the other being the string skirt, which can be traced in archaeological and ethnographic records and can be directly related to the onset of menstruation and childbirth. So those, those representations that we, we would normally consider male and female along social lines, I think, can actually be reflected in the biological record also. When it comes to the representation of figures on the steel in themselves conducting rituals, we don't have that sort of clarity. And a lot of them you cannot say quite specifically, a lot are genderless. When you can tell male and female apart though, and along the same lines that we see on the humans represented by the steely themselves, it does seem that it's the females conducting the religious ceremonies. In one case, we even have a case of weaving, where you would expect them to be female. We do even have the tattoos drawn on the figure, the small figure on the, on the steely who herself has the, the tattoos. There, there is another piece of, of, of dress that's similar between Etruria and, and your stele as well, and that's pointed hats in the northern part of Etruria, at least, and, and elsewhere. Pointed hats seem to be a, a feminine attribute as mm. well, so it's interesting that they're kind of shared across the different areas. Yeah. And what we don't often have is any, is any other age or status classes represented in, in our evidence. Children we don't find in burials as having any specific identifying features, for example, and we see them occasionally represented in friezes or, or, or such like, um, but it's, it's difficult to un understand whether they're representing children because also servants, for example, or, or lower class people are often re represented as small people, just like children are, so it's difficult to tell the difference. And we don't have any evidence for any other um, gender definitions or anything like that in in this ancient material that are identifiable either. So it is, does tend to be kind of a, a, a strongly binary system that, that has survived from the past. And I don't think that's just us reading it in a limited way either. In response to that, <laughs> it's very interesting when you think about age definitions as well because the steely, I have a group of about 29 of these steely that have all the attributes of what I would consider a female steely, so it has the, the belt, they have the fibulae, they have the pendants hanging off the belt, and the two things that they don't have, and this is always a set um, grouping, they don't have the decorated arms and they don't have the string skirts. So all the ones that don't have a string skirt are exactly the same ones that don't have the decorated arms and vice versa. And what they do have, in addition, that conversely you see on the little figures on the steely but not on the anthropomorphic imagery, except for this particular group that has no decoration tattoos on their arms and doesn't wear the string skirt, they also have a plait with three baubles at the bottom. And I believe them to be girls, prepubescent girls, because they haven't got those tube markers yet that they've started to menstruate. I'm going to bring in Eleanor now. Eleanor, for listeners who might be less familiar with the Piscians than the Etruscans, can you sketch out briefly what their world was like and their sacred spaces, if we can call them such, were like? Yes, of course. So the ancient Titanic region of uh, Piscinum roughly corresponds with modern Marque and North of Brezzo. 
um, on the Adriatic central coast of Italy. And it runs from the coast right up into the Apennines. So they rub shoulders with the Umbrians as well and the Etruscans a bit. Again, like the Etruscans, they have um, a very strong, rich material culture, particularly through burial evidence, elite burial evidence. And we do have a few stele um, on top of Tumulus tombs. The Pisces thrived in the 6th to 4th centuries BC and then were gradually overrun by the Latins and the Romans um, subsequently to that. So a lot of our evidence, again, is, is coloured by uh, Greek and Roman histories um, and accounts, particularly Strabo and Pliny. So, yeah, so most of our, our evidence for the Pisces comes from, from burial contexts. We don't have very much evidence for settlement, um, apart from one survey, the Potenza Valley survey, that's um, been completed recently. Sacred sites tended not to be monumentalised either, so are quite difficult to identify. Um, so... Um, they're worshipping at natural places in the landscape, so um, particularly associated with, with water, different types of water, um, and with hilltops and the Apennine passes. So um, lots of sites connected to communications routes, and then some groves and some caves. This is all coming from uh, votive offerings of different kinds. So we get uh, particularly water sites and caves, we get full-size pottery and miniature cups and cups and bowls by the fifth century we get bronze votive figurines and again mostly of umbrian or etruscan manufacture and recognizable characters being mars again associated with the woodpecker and hercules minerva and jupiter a little bit but again we're going to be very careful of equating those figurines with the greco-roman pantheon and how does gender play out in Piscinum? Um, again, I think we have quite a different story potentially to, uh, to Downia, um, with men and women much less gendered in the way that they're presented um, in the archaeology. Um, so we have a lot of warrior burials. Um, so supposedly guys with weapons and, and armour and swords and saying that the heart protectors... And then female burials full of spindle whorls and jewellery, but it's not always that clear cut. Sometimes there's some overlap and you find spindle whorls and swords together. So a slightly different picture. From the, from the evidence for the sacred sites themselves, the most significant deity we have is Cupra. So the primary deity of the region was, was a goddess. Again, maybe not entirely unusual, but certainly... She seems to have had um, a foot in both sort of male and female gendered um, camps. So two different aspects to her. So she seems to have been mainly a protective deity. And again, her um, cult places are associated um, with nodes of communication, particularly on trade routes and transhumance routes. So again, you might say associated with male genders predominantly, but not necessarily so it's, um, it's a very strong sort of warrior elite culture in the um, in the burial record, and it seems that Cooper was uh, very much associated with that. So she's um, she has martial aspects as well, which may be picking up the sort of later Roman association of the region with Mars. And it's only really later that she becomes firmly associated with sort of women's business, with fertility, um, gynecological health, motherhood, 
and again, she survives, her cult survives into the Roman period, but that's the aspect that survives rather than the, than the martial aspect. That's very interesting. Why do you think that is? Well, the Romans associated her with Venus, they syncretised her with Venus, so I guess then you've got the, um, the binary <laughs> between Mars and Venus, and again, Mars with his martial aspects, his pastoral aspects, and Venus associated with women, so it's that, it's that division of her two halves. Let me remind you that you're listening to an audio from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion, and we're talking today about gender and ritual in pre-Roman Italy. Frances Ely is an associate lecturer with The Open University, and she's also a practitioner who's creatively engaged in Hellenistic reconstructionism. Over the years, she's worked with myths and rituals of Artemis, Dionysus and Persephone, amongst others, using these projects to understand more about both ancient religion and contemporary ideas about gender. I spoke to Frances about a project she'd led with a women's group in East Kent, which culminated in a sacred performance based on the Homeric hymn to Demeter. We were aware of the element of performance uh, worship and sort of sacred drama in antiquity, and especially in the Eleusinian Mysteries. So we decided to take the Homeric hymn to Demeter and create a, the, a drama out of it that we could all perform as a group and take different roles. And then following that particular drama, the key protagonists, uh, who were sort of the, the group leaders and also sort of ritualists, would then do the embodiment of those goddesses, um, which means that um, we we would continue in our roles and perform a sort of oracular function for the rest of the group. We wrote a, a script. It was it was quite it was very accessible to everybody because everyone's at different levels. We did update certain understandings. So um, so there are certain things that we we uh, manipulated, we innovated on, let's say, in order to make it um, more. Um, modern or accessible to what we were going through as women in the 20th century uh, but also we also think that because we are receiving these some of these stories via male voices that very often we don't often we don't feel that we're necessarily always receiving the experiences of women or what how women would have experienced the myth or the or the mystery all the mythic stories they're often you know uh, passed down through through the male voice and, and not not the female. So we thought it was valid and, and acceptable to rework, for example, the abduction of, of Persephone by Hades. So we made that much less violent. He actually was um, Hecate was the sort of mediating influence between the two. So so she um, she actually invited and drew Persephone down to the underworld on Hades' behalf because he was. You know, he was without uh, a female counterpart and he, he needed that to balance his energy. So, yeah, we made it much more of a Persephone having a choice, you know, Persephone having free will and Persephone choosing to go down and choosing to stay as well. So um, it was much less about her, you know, being stripped of her her agency. So we didn't really, really mess about with it too much, but we certainly thought it was acceptable to... to uh, to do these sorts of things. Anyway, and then we, we did things like we um, came together as a group and um, and created uh, peploi costumes. We actually created full costumes. We created masks. So all of the protagonists created masks for their own characters, props and costumes. 
we spent many months um, <laughs> practicing, learning our lines. I walked along the beach with my, I was playing Persephone, um, walked along the beach um, with my um, uh, little uh, lines all recorded, learning them all. So we had, in the end, we had 10 people playing and, and some women uh, watching as well. We performed in a very sacred space. Actually, it was a yoga studio, but um, we we, tr we transformed it with lights and, and cloth material. But um, we also have had an altar space in, in these uh, rooms. So this particular area was con sort of considered sacred and consecrated and all the rest of it. Sacred drama is it's not like just a play. You know, this is considered to be something that is dedicated to the goddesses and was done in a kind of um, very, very um, reverential atmosphere um and we so before we even played we dedicated it to the Eleusinians and uh, hope for their blessing on the procedure so this already kind of starts to create a sanctity to the whole atmosphere uh, the whole thing proceeded unfolded it was beautiful um and we and, and in the weaving of it and that that I can only explain that it felt like a weaving the, the um, Demeter, Hecate, Persephone tr triangle, it wove together in the entirety of a woman's experience. Um, you know, and you had the transition from Corey into Persephone. So, you know, the growing up and the, uh, the leaving home of a, of a girl and the grieving of a mother for a child and this kind of thing. And in fact, um, some of the women who had gone through those kinds of experiences in the group were actually in you know, floods of tears, you know, going through this, these sorts of emotions again. So there was a catharsis going on. But also, you know, the whole connection with the understanding of the cycles of birth and death and life and the fact that we are eternal and, you know, that there is no end. Um, and, um, and the strength of women, women uh, in, in supporting this entire process. Camilla, what are your thoughts about what Francis described in that audio? I think this is very exciting and it's um, something that's very important, this work that's happening at the moment of women reimagining ancient myth from a female perspective and giving greater agency and complexity to female characters and by turn also giving greater complexity to the male count counterparts, of course, and the stories as a whole. I think we're getting some really interesting insights and new ways to think and learn about this material that in many instances is, is very, very important to our own Western culture today still. I've just, in fact, finished reading Mad Madeline Miller's Circe, which I found an absolutely transformative experience. And we have the Circe of Homer, we have the Circe of Ovid, and now we have Miller's Circe, and all these characters can coexist and teach us different things about the human condition. But I do think that this um, new emphasis on the female by females, and it's happening not just in scholarly and academic communities, but also in the pop popular culture and everywhere in between. So I think that's very, very exciting. And the work that she's doing sounds fantastic. And to be able to involve um, emotional responses that the people are having through this. The other thing I found really, obviously I found what you were saying about weaving fabulous because that touches very much on work that I do, but one thing that I was really struck by also is this idea of sacralising a yoga studio and the idea that you can transform a space 
through action and through transforming it cognitively as well as physically and creating an area in which there is an open communication between the human and the divine. And that's an extraordinarily critical part of any sort of religious and ritual experience, I think, and that's exactly what they've done. Um, and it shows uh, well, the importance of it, but also if you're in the right mindset, how easily just what we would think of quite a mundane space can be transformed into something special. Just to quickly pick up on what you were saying about female storytellers, it's made me wonder about how you think of the artists of your steely. Do you have any ideas? I mean, are you assuming a, a male creator or can we not make any assumptions at all? I think it's very hard to make any assumptions along a gendered line. Um, you know, we, we look at these big slabs of rock and you imagine, well, the quarrying process, you've got to be a big, strong man to do that, but I don't think that's the case at all. And um, I can say that on a very practical level that I can identify certain workshops and I can at some level also identify certain hands. Um, I'm not saying that these people were full-time making Dorney and Steely, but there's certainly a sector of society I think that were, and then perhaps others who dabbled in it as as was needed, but I, I would never want to make a, a gendered assumption on who was actually making them. Um, I think possibly the audience for whom they are being made, if we can tie them to the ritual sphere, might perhaps <laughs> be more towards the female, but again, that's, that's making wide assumptions that we just cannot know about. Eleanor, what's your response to Francis's story? Um, very much like Camilla. Um, don't, I can't say I've really got very much to add after that. So it's just to pick up on the, that, again, sort of, yeah, that creation and sacralising space and then just immediately provoking those that in a wide range of emotional reactions from, from the participants. And especially you know, that those are different life stages all sort of coming, coming together. And, yeah. Yeah. Phil, how about you? Well, one thing I was struck by that uh, Frances said was she used the phrase um, embodiment of the goddess, as if she and her participants were actually becoming a goddess or like a goddess or communing somehow with divinity through participating in the actual um, ritual or reconstructing the ritual. And that reminded me very much of these Etruscan figurines um, because uh, these, these are models of females or males, some of them, um, and to be a female offerant going to a ritual site offering a model of a female who might be a model of me to a female goddess, but it might be a model of that goddess as well. There's a kind of interchange of, and, and embodiment must be the word for it, going from your body through a representation of a body to a representation of a, a divine body. And one of the um, distinctive things that we can't forget about Mediterranean religion is that most of the, most of the deities were anthropomorphized, so they were actually in human form, which they didn't have to be. We're going to move on now to look at some specific objects that you've all chosen in advance of this discussion and starting off with a well, look, what looks like a small bronze figurine that Phil has brought along a picture of. Phil, tell us about this. Well, this is a small um, figurine of a female 
that is about 15 centimetres tall. And she actually lives in the British Museum at the moment. Um, she comes originally from the beginning of the 5th century, so she's just about the same time that the Persians were destroying Athens. And she was found in the 19th century in the bottom of a lake in Tuscany, um, high up in the Apennine Mountains near to the source of the River Arno, which is a river that flows through Florence. And she um, was found along with thousands of other objects that, that were deposited in this lake. Um, currently, there are five other objects in the British Museum that were found there as well, but there are dozens in other museums in Paris and in Berlin and in Italy. Um, but it wasn't only um, statues like this, little statuettes that were deposited, there were also pieces of metal, um, offerings of amber, glass, all sorts of things, or some organic things as well. Um, and it's thought that these offerings were made at this lake because, well, two reasons really. It was, it was thought to be the most sacred mountain in Etruria, presumably because of the, the river rose there. It's not the tallest mountain or anything like that, but it seems to be have that sort of central function as is where the water comes from. And also the water may have had particular properties because of uh, it, way back in geological times, lots of tree material got fossilised in there and it's thought that it has a sort of high uh, percentage of what you might call creosote in it. So it may be a sort of some kind of mineralised water as well. And it's not very accessible. It, it's high up in the mountains. It's not near any Etruscan city. So it must have been almost like a pilgrimage site. And we have to imagine people, we don't know who, but Etruscan people going to this site. So some of them would have been women and men, maybe children as well. We don't know. Either going to perhaps get a health cure by, by taking the waters or maybe fulfilling some kind of sacred vow if they'd promised a gift such as one of these figurines to, to a god, they might have to go to this sacred place to actually deposit it. I mean, the, the statue itself is, represents a woman who's very richly dressed. She has a, a long robe with a, with a scalloped bottom and lots of intricate patterning on it of dots and wavy lines, and whether it's um, embroidery or maybe pieces of attached beads or gold or glass we you can't really tell from the small figurine and then she has a cloak that goes over her shoulders known as a tabena that has a woven margin down the edge and is pleated down her front to make a kind of zigzaggy pattern that, that runs down her front on both sides so it's a very elaborate costume she also has an elaborate hairdo and she wears some kind of diadem headdress in her head but the head is slightly damaged so it's difficult to see precisely what her what her diadem looks like but she's obviously uh, a, a richly dressed person um, and as, as some people have suggested that perhaps she might represent because of this richness a deity so that's associating the kind of richness of, of clothing and appearance with the the richness of being a deity, I suppose. Um, another interesting thing about her is the way she's standing. She has both arms raised, one slightly um, her left arm extended a little more than her right, um, but she's also taking a step forward, so she's actually in motion. She's going somewhere as she's being offered to the deity in this lake. And this is quite unusual for these statues, and indeed Greek statues of, of this period as well, which tend to be rather stiff and formal. And she's actually breaking from that pose and moving, so that's an interesting aspect of what's being represented. So her whole attitude suggests some kind of movement. Unfortunately, her hands have been damaged, and so we can't see whether she was holding anything originally. Some of these figures hold little 
offering plates, which would have which would have held some kind of offering for the god. Um, and, but others hold things like lotus buds, for example, which is, is thought to represent the, um, the, the goddess of fertility, Aphrodite of Venus. But but we can't really see what she's uh, what she's uh, holding in her hand. Underneath her feet are the remains of little um, bronze pegs that would have held her into a, some, kind of, some kind of stone base originally, so she would have been a statue standing on a base. And this is a very specific form of kind of offering a representation of a person standing on a pedestal. Um, and, it, and it occurs in parts of the Greek world and in, in, and in Etruria as well. And so she was presumably meant to actually be stood somewhere as part of a ritual so that she would stand somewhere and, and, and participate herself as a freestanding person, object, in, in some kind of ritual. So it's not just a case she would be, say, cast into the, into the waters of the lake and forgotten about. Um, she would actually have a, a standing presence of, of her own as well. But quite how she fitted in with ritual in the Etruscan period, we don't know. But we're stuck with, with, with looking for, for parallel ideas, like Francis's embodiment, for example. Um, all the kind of rituals that you can see on, on Camilla's stele. Um, and maybe she, she was a person who could have participated in one of those kind of ceremonies. Um, so the object that I've chosen for discussion um, is, well, one of several, but uh, we find two different types of very large bronze rings um, in burials in Piscinum. So averaging about 15, 20 centimetres uh, in diameter and they'll have either four or six nodules uh, equally spaced or roughly equally spaced around the outside edge. So these don't appear to have any practical value because they're just of the, because of the weight of them. And they've only been found in burial contexts. But um, as we know, most of the contexts we have for Piscinum are, um, are burials. So the question then is, what are they doing in there? What are they for? Um, and they're again found in burials in um, a particular locality of the region, in the Ascalana re- uh, area, near Cupra Maritima. So um, the main sanctuary site of the goddess Cupra. So I'm, I'm putting us back to, uh, to talk a little bit more about her. So they're found in both male and female graves. And again, where the limited skeletal analysis has been done to, um, to actually identify the gender of... Uh, the deceased and they're found in two different locations they are either be uh, on the pelvis or as if they're being held in one one hand uh, usually the right hand and it doesn't you know it's not always pelvis for the woman and, and right hand for for the man so that again um just points at a little bit of um gender equality or respecting different roles that both men and women in Piscean society could perform, whether they were actual roles or if this is symbolic. So the suggestion is that this location on the, the pelvis relates to um, fertility, but again, not necessarily just female fertility, and that being held in the hand relates, relates more to um, the, the warrior culture and the fact that People need to defend uh, the community. And so put, how am I putting that back to Cupra? It's, it's more just um, the location. It's the, the richest area for her cult in Piscinum and, and the only place that, that these um, bronze rings occur. Uh, so possibly, again, just reinforcing the fact that the goddess also had these dual roles in, 
again, and we're talking again, sort of sixth, fifth century BC. Camilla, tell us about what you brought along. This is a Dornian matte painted pot, and it's quite a special one. It's come directly out of work that I've been doing very, very recently and a lot of ideas that I've been having. We've known this pot for a long time. It's published in Myers Apulian in 1912, I think that book was put out. And it's quite unique in a number of ways, or I should say falls within a group of relatively unique Dornian pots. It's in the matte painted style, which is typical to the area. They didn't go into figuration, the Dornians. So this is quite a fancy one. We can date it specifically to what we call the South, South Dornian subgeometric 2B, which we can date between <laughs> 475 and 425 BC. They didn't travel very far. They seem to be made in the area around Canosa, and they didn't travel very far out of that region, unlike a lot of other Dornian pottery. What I love about this one in particular, what I love, there's so much going on, it's, it's quite wonderful. But what's brought me to it is, you can see on the foot, this raised foot, is this particular, it had always been called horns, like a horns of consecration, or a boat. What I think it is, and this comes directly off an image that I have recently found on a Dornian Stella and a few other images that I've now since been able to trace thanks to that image, I think it refers to augury. And what we're seeing there is a very specific shaped platform that we all also see on the stele with those horns, that upturned crescent with a little platform off to the side. And you can see it's clearly outdoors because we've got some little plants between those. And then those little squiggles standing on the platform are birds. And we see another row of those birds right up the top around the lip. The other things that we see on this pot is the shape, which is quite a unique shape. And it's a filter vase. It's what we call a filter vase. So it has that female protome, which has no particularly functional use. It would be hard to use as a handle because it would just snap off. It's got a hollow wide mouth and then this extraordinary spout, which has, you can't see inside it in this image, but in fact it's sealed over, but then full of lots of little holes. Now these particular augury scenes, what I believe to be these platforms for augury, can only be found on this particular sort of matte painted pottery, the South Dornian subgeometric 2B, and we only find it, I've got about 19 examples now that I've gathered, we only find it on these really specific shapes, like the filter vases, which are pretty special in themselves, a very special shaped mug, which just looks like a beaker. We have it on one ascos, a very lovely bowl in the British Museum that has a little acorn in the center of it, and some other one-handle cups. And they're such intimate objects, as opposed to the steely, which are large and cold, these pots are so intimate. You can imagine people actually handling them and what I wonder, given that they're very, very specific shapes, is that they're not actually part of the augury ritual themselves, whether it's consecrating the ground before the augury took place, whether it's invoking the gods and the ancestors, and I do believe that the Dornians probably had ancestor, ancestor cult rather than any sort of anthropomorphised gods. At least the ancestors are very, very important part of their ritual. Or perhaps it was giving thanks. I'm not quite sure what they were doing, but given the range that they're on, this very limited range of objects that are very ritualistic in their shape and their function, there has to be a connection because you're not seeing it on the things that we would expect to see them on, the, the more typical Dornian shapes, the Ola, the Atingatoi. You never see the, those platforms on that. 
And the very last thing that I will say about this pot is, as I've been saying, that I do believe that the women were the protagonists in Ritual and Dornia, we have this female standing there. And I wonder if she's not the auger herself. And she's got some earrings and a headband and it's all, it's all sort of going on. The depictions that I now believe to be scenes of auger around the Dornian Steely, we know they're women because they always have a long plait and that's a pretty strong signifier in, um, in these Dornian culture, I believe, along with some other things that we, we see. So I think what we have here is on close inspection a very ritualistic object that shows, alludes to, um, to augury, but we have to know what they were doing in the first place to be able to read that, and it's something that I've only able to, been able to read in the last month, I would say. Well, that's a really lovely image to finish with, actually, this uh, object with a possible Dornian female auger on it, so that's perfect. I'd like to thank Dr Camilla Norman for joining us at the Open University to tell us about her work on ancient ritual in southeast Italy. And thank you too to Phil Perkins, Eleanor Betts and Frances Ely for sharing their perspectives on the themes of gender, ritual and ancient material religion. You can visit the website of the Varentesen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion to find links to some of the objects and places that we've been talking about today, together with a bibliography. Thank you for listening.